Morning, everyone. Good to see you out. We are continuing in our series on Philippians, and we have three messages left in our series. And they, these three messages kind of form the Finally My Brothers um, extra long double ending to Philippians. Uh, Paul, like a, a pastor who just can't let a sermon go, actually says finally a couple of times. Um, and he covers four topics uh, in the alleged conclusion of his letter. Uh, so last week, uh, Paul's clear, passionate description of the gospel uh, in terms of counting everything in our flesh rubbish for gaining the righteousness of Christ by faith, uh, he now moves to some practical outcomes or some practical realities of that gospel. And so, in these last three weeks, I have framed them simply this way. It'll be profitable living, profitable thinking, and profitable giving. Or we can perhaps even more aptly say that Paul is giving us three patterns of living. So you could think a pattern of living, a pattern of thinking, and a pattern of giving in the Christian life. Whichever way you think of it, it's a pattern that Paul gives us that is profitable for us. Uh, and that is good for us. And a pattern is important. Believe it or not, there was a time in my life when I knit uh, for about a year, year and a half, and then I got bored of it. But when I was a young lad, uh, my mom was knitting all the time, and so I just naturally learned how to knit. And you need a pattern to, to knit. Uh, you know, anybody who's a knitter here knows about, about, you know, knit three, purl two, and then knit two more, and then purl one, and then knit four, and then dosi do and I don't know what all the different things are anymore, but you got to follow a pattern, right? And, and you have to reference that pattern, and if it's a good pattern, then, then you get a sweater at the end uh, and not just a tangled ball of yarn. And uh, the other thing that's important not only is a pattern is looking to someone who follows that pattern well. So looking over my mom's shoulder and seeing her follow the pattern and imitating her as she knits, I would hold the needles the way she held them and I would you know, do the things the way she did them. We have to look at others to follow the pattern. But even better than having a pattern and following a pattern, if you're like me in your skills, is having someone else produce a finished product for you at the end. You know, so after you're done all of your knitting and everybody sees you there slaving away knitting for Christmas and then you sneak out to the store and buy a sweater, wrap it, look what I did. And, uh, and that's what we're going to see in our text today, is that Paul gives us a pattern to follow. We have other people who can who can, we can imitate in, in following that pattern, uh, but even better, we get a whole new recreation as we are repatterned after Christ in the end. And so we need that pattern in our Christian life, and we need more than a pattern, we need a power, and more than a pattern and a power, a final recreation. And this text, as I said, is a continuation of Paul's flow of thought from the immediately previous verses. So I just want to remember the context from last week. In the first part of chapter 3, Paul was engaged in a series of mock boasting. He made seven arguments about how much confidence in his own flesh and in his own righteousness he could have. He was a true Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, never accused of breaking the law, belonged to the strictest of sects, the Pharisees, and he hated any perceived heresy so much that he was actually a persecutor of the church. 
But he concludes his argument about seeking righteousness by saying that all of our personal works, all of our qualifications are rubbish. They are garbage. We throw them out with the trash in order to receive the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. And then Paul gives an amazing summary of the three core realities of the gospel that mark a believer's life. And the final reward of that gospel, knowing Jesus, receiving his power, joining in his humility and suffering, and and gaining glorification in his resurrection. He says, you remember in 3, 10 to 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Now what's going to happen here at this point in the letter, this is all just leading you into today, is that there's a possible misunderstanding or there's a possible false conclusion that the Philippians might make about Paul and themselves. That it's a mistake that Paul thinks might come from that powerful statement of the gospel and and he needs to correct it. He needs to replace that false assumption with a correct pattern of life that should rightly flow from that truth of the gospel about those four aspects of knowing Jesus. And so that's where he now gives himself as an example of how do you live in that resurrection power, having abandoned all the things of this life for faith in Christ. And let me just pray before we look at Philippians 3, 12 to 4, 1. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the mirror that we look into and we don't come away from unchanged. Or at least, as James says, wise person does not come away unchanged. And so, Father, as we hold up your word, we look into it as a mirror, we consider it as a pattern, uh, that we might imitate it, and that we might know how, as disciples, as those who love you, who treasure you, who cherish you, have no righteousness of our own, but seek only righteousness, your righteousness, in your works, that this is how we might live, as Paul instructs us by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Philippians 3:12 to 4:1 Not that I have already obtained this and then this being all that gospel conclusion or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own Brothers I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." So the first thing that we see here is a pattern to imitate, then we'll see a pattern to avoid, and then we will see a pattern that we will be conformed to. So first of all, a pattern to imitate. 
Again, remembering our context, Paul's just finished his mock boasting. He's saying, you better not rest or have confidence in your flesh. You need not repent, uh, or you need to repent of any and all self-righteousness, and you need to receive the righteousness of Jesus that comes by trusting in him and in nothing else. And now he's concerned that he does not want the gospel misunderstood. Because you hear that message that we don't do anything in our flesh, there's nothing we can do in our works, and so you just rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is absolutely the gospel. But, but Paul doesn't want his Philippians friend to be confused by his bragging of how much he has given up and how much he doesn't do for his righteousness. Don't be misled by the tremendous change even that you've seen the gospel work in my life. Don't make this mistake. Don't imagine that I am saying... That just because you've given up all confidence in the flesh and you are not doing any work for your righteousness and that you've put your hope in the finished work of Jesus, that you are finished. Don't even think that I am finished. I haven't achieved it yet. I haven't attained it yet. I'm not done. The gospel I just described to you from my own life example isn't the end of your race. It's just the beginning of the race. It was not the end of my race. It was just the beginning of my race, Paul is saying. And Paul understands just how incredible the gospel sounds. He realizes that the gospel can mistakenly be presented or received in kind of an abbreviated or a simplistic form. A form that sounds like if everything rests on Jesus and we give up all working and straining for our righteousness, and then once I trust in Jesus, then I must be done. And in that sense, the gospel just becomes the finish line that we need to cross at some point in our life. Like sometime between birth and death, just get to the gospel, cross that finish line, and you're finished. And it it can kind of sound that way. And Paul's worried that that's what he has just communicated to the Philippians. And unfortunately, as evangelicals who are unapologetically gospel-focused and gospel-centric, we can sometimes make this mistake in our presentation of the gospel, right? We say, just, just trust Jesus, and, and, and maybe we confirm it with a decision through baptism, and then you're safe, you made it. Like, that's the main thing. Just trust Jesus, get baptized, and we're good. I can hole punch a notch out of my evangelism scorecard, and you can rest assured that you'll see heaven. Whew, you made it, you earned it, we're done. We can kind of present the gospel that way sometimes, you know? You get heaven, I get another gem in my crown. My work is done here. We can even go farther sometimes to think that the gospel acts like a finish line as Christians to our flesh and ungodliness. And it's confusing sometimes for new Christians because we're a new creation and we've received the gospel and we've received the spirit. So good, I'm free from sin. I'm done with all kinds of ungodliness in my life. And we can make the mistake of thinking that if we just trust Jesus, then the fight with our flesh is done. And there won't be any more wrestling with sin left to do. Well, the gospel isn't the finish line for that either. We can go even further, and perhaps even worse, maybe this is the worst of all of them, and think that because we've trusted in Jesus and received his righteousness and redemption, that we are finished getting all that we need from the Bible and from knowing Jesus. I don't need to know Jesus anymore. I went to church. I learned enough about Jesus to get the gospel. That's what everybody wanted was for me to know Jesus and be saved. So I've learned enough about Jesus. I've known him well enough that he saved me. So I don't need to know anything more about Jesus. I don't, I don't want to know anything more from the Bible because I've already got the best thing out of it. What more is there to get from Jesus? What more is there that the Bible can offer me? 
I've, I've reached the finish line of the gospel. I, the, the Bible taught me everything I need to know. I got the biggest prize, and so I'm done. And Paul, Paul knows that the gospel can be misunderstood this way, and he doesn't want his Philippians friends to think that way. He doesn't want us to think that way. He doesn't think, want us to think that the gospel is the finish line. And this is what Paul needs to correct, correct. And he needs to replace a pattern of living that might come from people who hear the gospel and then just say, okay, I'm done with that. I can live however I want now. There's nothing left in the Christian life for me after I've crossed the finish line of the gospel. He wants to correct the pattern of living as though the gospel is the finish line with a pattern of life that recognizes the gospel as the starting blocks of the race. So Paul says... I've not even attained the complete gospel life yet. I am not perfected. I am not glorified. I have this race to run. Putting all my confidence in Jesus was the start of the race that I run, not the end. And you better imitate me in that. Right? Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the profitable living part. You want to live profitably? You want that prize at the end? You want the profitable outcome? You strain forward and you forget what is behind. He's not finished knowing Christ as if we ever could be. Paul has not made use of and realized all of the power of Jesus' resurrection in his life. There's still more power from Jesus for Paul to experience. Paul has not completed his share of the sufferings of Jesus. He's not finished his sanctification process and arrived at glorification. He says, I'm not done. And I'm sure he'd say, neither are you. None of us are. And this is the third time, possibly the fourth, depending how you count, that Paul has brought up this fundamental reality of the Christian life. He's already told the Philippians that their lives were an ongoing process of God's. He said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus in chapter 1, verse 6. This is an ongoing thing. He's begun a good work, and he's going to bring it to completion. He told them that their lives will be a participation in this process with God. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who wills and works in you. In chapter 2, 12 to 13. So he says, you're still working. God has your salvation. The answer is assured, but you still work out that equation. You remember how the kids helped me do that and how I got it wrong a couple of weeks ago. And even if you do get it wrong, the answer stays the same because the answer is built into the equation of your life. But now he tells them the same thing. I am not finished. I'm not done either. This is something I work out. I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Or more literally, I live to seize hold of Jesus because Jesus has already seized hold of me. All through Philippians, Paul is addressing that seeming to us paradox, but that tension of God's sovereignty and our will, right? He who began a good work will bring it to completion. God will do it. You work out your salvation because there's a God who is at work in you. And here he says, I, lay, I work to lay hold of Jesus, to seize Jesus, because Jesus has already seized me. Every time Paul talks about our effort in the Christian life, he grounds our work and our effort in the already accomplished work of Jesus and the sovereignty of God because he's already laid hold of us. And he goes on to say, 
He does not look backwards at his failures, but he strains forward with determination. God has, when, when we're saved and, and, and redeemed and restored through repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Jesus Christ, God takes our sins and he puts them as far as the east is from the west. And he does not look on our sins anymore. He remembers them no more. And he sews them up in a bag and he throws them in the ocean, one prophet says. And so Paul says here, I don't look back. I don't look back at my old life. I don't look back at my failures. I don't even look at yesterday. I press on. Because my sins are forgiven. And I will stumble. I'll make mistakes working out the equation. But that's not where I dwell. My eyes are forward on Christ. He says all that looking forward is in response to, Paul's, to God's upward calling. It's as though God is drawing Paul forward. Jesus has hold of Paul and has seized him and is pulling him. And God is drawing him. It's the upward call of God. All of the imagery in this passage is leaving behind and being pulled forward and drawn forward by the glory of God and the treasuring of God and the sovereignty of God and the firm hold that Jesus has on him. That's the pattern of life that Paul wants to follow, a pattern of life that is pursuing the glory of God. To the end, to the final resurrection and glorification. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any one of you could think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to this example you have in us. So in essence here, Paul is saying, it's interesting, he's basically saying, he's kind, of, he's kind of confirming, if you understand the gospel in this way, then you have a mature understanding of the gospel, right? Those of us who are mature think this way. Think this way about the gospel being the starting point and not the finish line. Think this way about the, the connection of the tension between God's sovereignty and our work. Right? The, this formulation of the gospel and the understanding of the pattern of the Christian life that flows out of these doctrinal truths, Paul says, it's almost like an affirmation to us to say, you've got it right. Those of you who are mature think this way. Th- those of you who have a full grasp of what is going on, you've got it right. And then he says, if, if any of you don't think that way, If you think that the gospel works some other way, he says, I've presented it clearly to you, and I'm not going to argue. God will reveal it to you also. He's saying, I I know that not all of you understand the gospel in this way. I know that not all of you understand the Christian life in this way. But God will reveal to you that this is a mature understanding of the gospel in the Christian life. So then he says, but just hold true to what you have attained to what maturity and what understanding you have achieved, walk according at least to that. Don't walk any less than what you have achieved. Don't don't pattern your life in any form that is less than the gospel that you have received and as you understand it. Walk at least in what you know. And imitate me, imitate my pattern of life of running well and follow the pattern of others who walk in this example, who walk in this pattern. And Paul now comes back to the idea of the gospel life lived in community. Paul says, there are mature believers among you Philippians there in the city of Philippi in your church who walk in my way, who imitate me. 
You know, whether it's Timothy or Epaphroditus or, or Luke while he stayed there, whoever it is, he says, walk in those who imitate this. Like this gospel life is lived out in community. So look around, find the pattern of mature believers and walk in that pattern in community. And why does he want them to do this? Why does he, why does he stress so firmly you know, so passionately this race to run, this pattern of life to live, to imitate him, to imitate others, to, to seek maturity in this understanding of the gospel. The reason he's so passionate about it is because there is a pattern to avoid. This is where Paul's real heart comes out. He says, for many of whom I've often told you and I will tell you again even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. A common technique that Paul uses, you've seen and heard repeatedly, is contrast. And now he puts forward a contrasting pattern of life, a pattern that he desperately wants his Philippian friends to avoid. He says, Essentially, and I think there's a connection here, that if you think the gospel is the finish line, there's a danger that you never really understood the true gospel. You, you think you just put your hope in Jesus and then you go live a pattern of life any way you want to live it, then you never really understood the gospel. Because there's many who Paul knows, and I've told you about them, that they do not live this gospel pattern of living. And he describes what Wrong life can come from a wrong understanding of the gospel, if you think it's the finish line. You may think you can live any way you want, and it's not a gospel pattern of life, not a Christian pattern by any means. In Romans 5 and 6, Paul's tackling the same error in understanding the outcome of God's grace in the gospel. This isn't the first time he's dealt with this. He deals with it in Romans as well. In Romans 5:20 to 6:2. He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel, where sin abounds, and boy, sin abounded in my life, Paul says, and it abounds in my life, it abounds in our lives. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, leading to righteousness through Christ Jesus. But he knows the problem. (laughs) As soon as he gets done with that gospel, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, it's the same thing. Paul knows the danger of the incredible good news of the gospel is that we in our sinful minds will still get that gospel twisted and wrong. And in Romans, he was cutting off any argument that he knows that people might make. Arguments I'm sure he literally heard many times, maybe even in Philippi. And the argument might go like this. If, if the good news of Jesus is that we are made righteous by faith in him, and if his grace comes to those who are sinners, and the bigger the sinner, the more grace God could show, then we can sin all we want, and Jesus gets to show even more grace. In fact, we should sin more so that God can look even better. And Paul's like... Wow, you got that so wrong. All those words you just said are wrong. 
Paul's passionate in his rejection of this ridiculous way of thinking. He says, by no means, or may it never be. What a terrible misunderstanding of the power of God's grace. If it rescued you from sin, how could it leave you in sin? What kind of grace would it be? It's not grace that discovers us in a sewage pit and leaves us in the sewage. It's not grace that finds us in our rubbish and leaves us in the trash heap. God's grace rescues us from that. And so here in this emotional letter to the Philippians, Paul's emphasis and emotions come out with with almost awkward strength once again. This is just such an emotionally charged sentence. Just let the word of God come to you again as they come through Paul's pen to us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What a terrible, terrible condemnation. And it's no wonder Paul is weeping. Could you imagine this outcome for anyone that you love? For your child? For your spouse? Could you even imagine this consequence even for a stranger or even for an enemy? Who would want this on anybody? This is a tragedy. This is weeping and tears and sorrow and pain for a Christian and for God. That anyone would live to this end as it's described here. There is no joy in the destruction of our enemies. There's only tears. There is no smug satisfaction that sinners' lives are a disaster as to the consequences of their passions. That they reap the consequences of their belly. As they follow their appetites, they are consumed. There is no smug satisfaction in that. There is only tears that they did not heed the warning. That they did not lay hold of Jesus as he lays hold of them. That they are still slaves to their desires and slaves to their passions. That their only God is their appetite. And they consume and they consume and they consume and they are never satisfied. Their belly is never full. And their passions and their appetites will only lead them further and further until they're consumed. And they never set their mind on the eternal glory of heaven, but their minds are firmly fixed only on the perishable things of earth. And Paul is weeping. And we should weep. And we do weep. Because we would never wish this on anyone. Anyone we love or even an enemy. And Paul says, avoid this pattern. Beware this pattern of life. It leads to destruction. There is no profit in it. There is no glory in the end. There is only destruction. And then Paul finishes, as he always does, with the assurance of our hope. There's a pattern that we will be conformed to. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Notice that their enemies were citizens. See see Paul's contrast already. They live as enemies to the cross of Christ. We live as citizens in heaven. And from that, we await, not passively, we're not waiting, sitting on our hands. He's already just said, we're running, (laughs) we're striving. We're waiting, not passively, we actively wait with this pattern of life of the gospel. We await a savior, the one who's going to rescue us from our appetites, the one who's going to rescue us from our passions and and rescue us from destruction. We await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who will transform our lowly bodies, literally the bodies of our humiliation. When this, when this Savior comes, He's, he's going to transform us. Remember I said it, it's great to have even better than a pattern to just have it remade new. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying here. There's a, there's a pattern of the gospel. There's a pattern of life. There's a pattern to avoid. But he's going to remake us. We got better than a pattern. We get remade. We get transformed. Our body of humiliation is going to be transformed to be like symorphon. You know, symmetry, symbiotic. Simorphon. Simorphon means to have the same form. Remember Morphe from the, from the Christ hymn, that he is the very form, the very Morphe of God. Now, Paul says, he's going to trans, uh, trans, transform us to be like Simorphon, to have the same Morphe of Jesus, to be, to be like Jesus, to be like his glorious body. We're, we're going to assume that final, perfect pattern not, not just by the effort of our pattern following, but by his transformation, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We get simorphon. We get turned into the same morphe, the same form of Jesus in his glorious body. Amen. And it's by that power, that resurrection power, It's a resurrection power that enables the resurrection. It enables his glorious transformation. It's going to enable our transformation. It's also going to enable the subjection of all of creation under Jesus' feet. It is the power of the universe that is going to do this. Remember 1.6, what he started, he has the power to finish. It's his resurrection power. And then he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. He stacks up five terms of endearment in a row. Right? Like it's kind of sappy how emotional Paul is in this letter. <laughs> like me when I get up here and get all weepy. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it is kind of sappy because Paul is just overflowing with emotion. My brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy, and my crown. He just loves them. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He doesn't just say stand firm in the Lord. He says stand firm thus. And that little word thus is important because what that thus is, the thus is, this is how you stand firm in the Lord. He's saying, I've just told you the thus. It's by conforming to this pattern of living, this striving of not counting the gospel as the finish line, but as the starting block, by by the upward call of God, by keeping your eyes forward, by forgetting what's behind, by striving, by running in the power of Jesus, and by avoiding the earthly things and that pattern that I told you to avoid, avoid that. So he says, thus. He could have easily just said, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, that would have made sense. But he says, stand firm thus. Because Paul wants them to know, I've just told you how you stand firm. This is the pattern of the Christian life that will hold you firmly in the Lord. And you're loved. You're my brothers, 
and you're loved. This is the pattern. This is how we stand firm. And it's kind of funny because he says, stand firm, run the race. And so the standing firm that we do is active. The, the standing that we do is running. I sometimes talk about the, you know, the downward draw of culture and how we have to swim upstream. And so to mix another metaphor in here, if you want to stay even with the bank in a stream, you've got to swim. If you stop swimming, you don't stay even. You don't stand firm. And so Paul is saying the way the Christian stands firm is we run. And by running, we stand firm. Because you're always running upstream. You're always running against the tide. You're always going against the flow of the culture, as we've talked about here. And Paul recognizes this. So the conclusion is, don't stand as though the gospel is the finish line. Paul says, posture your life as though the gospel is the starting pistol. There are many who don't follow this pattern, and they are enemies of the cross. They are not citizens of heaven. Their God is their belly. Their God is not the Father in heaven. And their end is destruction, not the upward call, not glorification. But we, beloved, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my brothers and sisters, we run our pattern of life is to win the prize of resurrection. And we will win it. We will be glorified. We will have our bodies of humiliation transformed into bodies of glorification with Christ Jesus. We'll receive more than just a pattern. We will be simorphon. We will be given the morphe, the form of Jesus' glorious body, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. And that is why we stand firm. That's how we stand firm. That is how we pattern our lives properly and profitably after the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, such a powerful letter, such a powerful reality that Paul gives us here. Oh man, we just rejoice. We rejoice again in last week's proclamation of the gospel that it is not by our work, it's not our righteousness that saves us, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we rest fully in that righteousness and in his accomplished work. But you call us to a life of pursuing this gospel truth, that the gospel is not finished when we discover the righteousness of Christ. It's just the beginning. And Paul says there is more knowing of Jesus for us to do, an eternity of knowing Jesus. And Paul says, even in my own life, I have not experienced all the power of the gospel yet. I'm not done. There's more gospel power for me to experience. And he says, I'm not done suffering yet. There's there's more humility and suffering in Jesus for me to experience in the sanctification of my life that I'm not done with that yet. And I won't ever be done until I reach the glorification at the end. And so while we rest in the righteousness of Christ, we strive to lay hold of and lay lay firm hold of and to seize everything that the gospel has for our life. So for those of us that receive the gospel early, in our life, oh man, those who got it late, we're we're jealous because you got to live so many more years in the power of the gospel and that laying hold and that seizing and and that power. But even for those of us who are late in life, it is never too late. We can lay hold of that gospel power and we can experience it. And sometimes maybe it's even later in life that we come to the gospel because our life has been so much following our appetites and so much following our passion. 
and we've consumed and we've consumed and we've never felt satisfied. And so Jesus holds out the reality of the gospel to those who come late in life too. To say, receive my rest. Receive my righteousness. Trust in me and I will give you living water. And you'll drink and you'll never thirst again. Father God, whatever place we're at in this race, Lord, may we view the receiving of Christ as the starting point of our eternal life. It's the starting block of an eternity with you. It's not an end by any means, but a beginning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.